I, I think the poet or the filmmaker or the musician, the poet must not avert his eyes. You must not avert your eyes. This is what is coming at us. that's usually at least four months behind the rest of the world. I'm Paul Salt. I'm Paul Goodman. And today we shall be discussing 2017, the little year that could. Fuck right off, as far as many were concerned. Primarily regarded as not being quite as shit as 2016, 2017 saw more political upheaval, scandals, shootings, and disasters that drives compassionate people to the cinemas to drown out the painful noise of the world. Mm, it's like the anti-Hangover 2. <laughs> the inverse Hangover 2? <laughs> It's, it's like Hangover 2. <laughs> Very much Much so. of the same. 2017. Ah, <laughs> uh, so Paul, why are we doing this in April again? Uh, to be edgy, mostly. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Last thing they'll see coming. It's just what, what the Oscars do. It doesn't make any sense to do a 2017 best of year yeah. before, you know, only, only counting all of the films that came out before the Oscars. Yeah, we should, uh, just to remind people again that... A lot of the Oscar films, the best picture in America, gets held back until December so that it can be the last thing on the panel's mind before they actually vote. And as a result, we usually don't get those films, often considered to be the strongest films of the year by the studios that made them, until January, February, and March. So, yes. Yeah. Checking the best films of 2017 this year, you come across articles. I think there was one in The Independent saying that Manchester by the Sea was one of the best. Yeah. But it's, it's just much more comprehensive this way. Yeah. Um, you bookend the year nicely post Oscars. Yeah. And gives us a nice bit of time just to properly <laughs> see all the films that we should have seen. Yeah. And let them sink in as well. Just sort of let them live with you yeah. for a bit. Because there are films that I would have put in the top five in December that, you know, now it's been a little while. You know, have definitely been reevaluated, and I think that's important too. I mean, in, in a way, when you think about it, everyone's watching the last person to limp over the finish line, aren't they? <laughs> that's true. So, yeah. Nobody sees all the middle guys, and you're not going to be first yeah. unless you do this, unless we review 2018. Let's review 2018. Top film's probably Black Panther, although the man won't stand for that. Ah. Uh, okay, yeah. well, we are going to talk about a few things. We're going to tell you our favourite films of 2017. We're going to talk about the highest grossing films of that. And have some stray observations about random shit that happened in that 12 months or so. So, Paul, what is number 10 on your top 10 favourite films list? Uh, my number 10 is your number 4, so be leaving that. Okay, now. let's do that. Uh, whoever has rated the film highest will be the one to lead the conversation on it. Uh, so we will defer when there is a repetition. So. Yeah, good first go from me there. <laughs> My number 10 is You Were Never Really Here. If she's there, I'll get her. Cleary said you were brutal. I can be. So, starting off with one of the more controversially 2017 films. Uh, it's when I saw it, goddammit. It's on IMDb. Doesn't matter that n literally no one had the chance to see it in that year. <laughs> What's good enough for me is good enough for 7.3 <laughs> billion individual people. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Lynn Ramsey has finally made another film. Her first since we need to talk about Kevin six years ago. Cool. This time, it's about a brutal fixer named Joe, played by Joaquin Phoenix. And he is hired to rescue a senator's daughter from a sex trafficking ring. 
Uh, it's very much like Drive in that that's the plot, but it's definitely not what the film is about. Uh, instead, the film is filled with insights into Joe's character and his past. He's a tender brute who has a great deal of affection for his mother, but is also deeply traumatized by incidents that are brilliantly overly hinted at by Ramsey. Ramsey's direction is just startlingly good. Uh, she takes you to places and the methods that she uses to communicate the story and the character are just surprising and exciting in that way that only some directors can achieve. She makes the violence so much worse by cutting away from it, sort of jarringly jerking you out of the moment before plunging you into the next one. There's also a brilliant Johnny Greenwood score that is exciting at times and haunting throughout. He really blurs the line between score and the diegetic soundtrack. I reread my review for You Are Never Really Here on Screen Mayhem. And mm. what amazes me most is how much more I have gained from a second viewing and how differently so much of it struck me and how different qualities have stayed with me this time. So I think it's one of those films that's just going to stand up to many repeat viewings. I mean, I think many of the better films are, man. Yeah. I just hope we don't have to wait so long for the next Ramsey film because she really is mm. one of the best. Yeah. Or me for You Were Never Really Here. <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> It'll be here soon. <laughs> Come on, Australia. Release the files. <laughs> We haven't finished censoring it yet. <laughs> but there's, there's nothing to censor. It's surprisingly not violent. It's just brutal. We can cut the atmosphere out of this somehow. One wrong word and Joaquin's right out of there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> come back when you're in her again. It's the only way we like you. I'm playing Jesus. Yeah, but angry Jesus. <laughs> that scene where you beat Peter the Doubter to death. It's not Peter the Doubter. It's Thomas. <laughs> Peter the Doubter. It's, like, it's not like there's a fucking common phrase that tells you who the Doubter was. <laughs> Peter the Doubter, Noddy and Big Ears. <laughs> all, all three of them were fucking rinsed by Phoenix in the Jesus film. <laughs> and you can pull out on the front of the box. Check it out now in the Jesus film. Um, my favourite moment is a bit of a spoiler, but um, as one man lays dying, muttering lyrics to a song he perhaps wishes he had taken the time to learn, he takes the last risk of his life in reaching out to touch the hand of the man who killed him, and he takes it. It's not Whacking Phoenix, don't worry. Oh, cool, thank you. Okay, what's your number nine? Uh, my number nine is your number seven, so... Oh, well, my number nine is your number five. Jesus, this is getting complex. I know. Well, my number eight is your number eight. Ah! <laughs> ah my number eight is your number eight! No! Oh my god, but if your number eight is my number eight, and my <laughs> number eight is your number eight... That means neither of us talk about it. Jesus. Moving on. <laughs> so what is your number eight? Oh, well I thought you'd never ask <laughs> My number eight is Ryan Johnson's George Lucas presents Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi By Disney Yes, by Disney <laughs> Mine too What? I know We just said oh. It's all this Jeremy Corbyn nonsense going around <laughs> 2017, eh? Too much consensus <laughs> Something me has always been there. Then I was awake. This has been quite the controversial one for many reasons, but I adore this chapter in the Star Wars franchise. Following on from The Force Awakens, we pick back up with Rey, Poe, Finn, and Kylo Ren as the First Order <laughs> and the Resistance continue to do battle. Along with that, we're introduced to some new characters, uh, Leia and uh, a new character, Lukey Boy. Yeah. No, no, that's different Different clause. <laughs> there was a comma in my speech there. Please say that in future. But we're introduced to some new characters as well, and importantly, some new ideas. Uh, just as I was wondering on the futility of good versus evil in the Star Wars verse, the, mm. this very point is addressed. And it frankly lends a series of sober self-awareness. Uh, I reacted pretty negatively to Poe's treatment by Admiral Holdo until I realised just how he was responsible for his actions. 
the humour really worked for me and still did despite watching it for a second and third time over the weekend. Mm. And in Ray and Ren, you have a marvellous dichotomy of light and dark, way more complex than Luke and Vader as far as I'm concerned, but still not complicated, still thoroughly watchable. Mm. It's been levelled as uh, as this social justice warrior betrayal of the franchise. (laughs) Mm. So... Social justice warrior is a term used when someone virtue signals, usually when someone is on the far left without evidence or logic. But is The Last Jedi virtue signaling? Was this billed as finally the film that had a female protagonist or check out our rainbow cast? No, I don't think so. Mm. It upends plenty of tropes and Ryan Johnson basically set out to pull the rug out from everyone, but it doesn't preach. It certainly isn't celebrating its diversity in the film. It's incidental to the story. Mm. It doesn't have any bearing on the idea of accepting the failings of your heroes and preserving what you love. Yeah, one of the criticisms of it that I'd like to address is just that people say that Luke Skywalker is mishandled and... That just doesn't make sense to me, because to me, this is the most interesting he ever was. I really love Mark Hamill's performance in this. I think it's his best performance as Luke. It's the most interesting stuff that Luke has been given to do to actually lose faith, because he was Mm -hmm. always at odds with the teachings of the Jedi, you know, not letting go of his feelings and running off to save his friends when he ought to stay and train. It makes sense that he would suddenly find himself at odds with their teaching and have a sort of resentful respect for them especially after his own failure i was on board from the first minute with the humor i know it's it's really divided people um and i think there are a couple of moments when it was when the humor could have been excised from the from the film just a couple of moments but it never underscores the dramatic moments though last jedi doesn't pull its punches emotionally it just you know offers comedic relief in order to you know give the audience a bit, some relief in between some really quite shocking and dark moments. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. If I had to pick a favorite moment, well, I don't know about any of that, you know, gay shit you were talking about with, like, characters and meaningful stuff. I'm here for the fights. Ooh. And I really I love- heard there are some. There are some, and I really like the fight in the front room. Uh, yeah, me too. That was my that was my favourite thing. But it is, yeah, it's it's a moment of sort of great catharsis and one of really exciting action as well, uh, even yeah. if it turns out only to be a bit of a temporary arrangement <laughs> within it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's still just such a powerful moment when it happens, and you just think, holy yeah. fuck, I can't believe we're going in this direction. Yeah, and it's so fucking gorgeous. It's like a Shania Twain video. <laughs> <laughs> My number seven, one of the hardest to watch of my top ten, but at the same time, one of the most visually stunning, entertaining, and recommendable. And that is Taylor Sheridan's Wind River. They have six officers to cover an area the size of Rhode Island. Maybe you can help. I know what the tracks say. What is it that you do again? Hunt predators. So why don't you come hunt one for me then? Jeremy Renner is a game hunter and Elizabeth Olsen, an FBI agent. A, a young Native American girl has been murdered on the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming and they have to figure out who done it. The film explores the Native American experience and female Native American experience against the harsh backdrop of the frozen Wyoming landscape. It's brutal in its message, but it manages to deliver it whilst holding you in a manful embrace that you can't mm. get out of. <laughs> what really stuck with me was its questioning questioning the age-old maxim that revenge doesn't solve anything. Renner and Olsen are great, as is John Berntel and the rest of the supporting Mm. cast. Such a sad state of affairs inspired the making of this film. The Mm. pure glut of of murders and assaults and rape of young women on Native American reservations. And the ones who just disappear. Yep. And nobody bothers to look. Yep. And the pain is there for all to see. It's on the faces of the people in this film. It's just Mm. in every shot. 
Taylor Sh- and Taylor Sheridan is such a talent. He also wrote Sicario and yep. Sicario Two, I think. Which the more I learn about Sheridan, the more I'm excited about. Yeah, Hello High Water um, as well, right? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my one good thing would be the Mexican standoff by the factory and the vast expanse of snow with Jeremy yeah. Renner nearby. <laughs> yeah, it's a really thrilling sequence. Okay, my number seven mm. is the square. What are the biggest challenges in running a museum? We're a museum of modern and contemporary art, so we need to present art that is the art of today, art that is absolutely cutting edge, and the competition is fierce. Yes, my number nine. Yeah. Now, Force Majeure was one of my favourite films of 2014, and it was all about taking an utterly benign situation and asking what would happen if something extraordinary invaded it. Uh, With Force Majeure, it was a father who panics in the face of disaster and abandons his family. Uh, Only there is no disaster, everything's fine, but his family saw what he did. So the rest of the film is just about how everyone deals with that. (laughs) Yep. Force Majeure's director, Ruben Ostland, returns to tear a little more the fabrics of society with The Square. It's basically just a few days in the life of a curator of a Swedish modern art museum. Um, Mm -hmm. His name is Christian. Uh, He sleeps with a reporter. He has his phone stolen off of him. He's involved in a controversial marketing strategy for an exciting new art piece. And he's also just a guy living in Sweden. All of those things are then explored um, in the film as Christian is repeatedly put into these extraordinary situations that force him and us to address aspects of his character and our morals that are lacking. Clace Bang who plays the lead role, is amazing. And not just because of his sweet name. Uh, (laughs) He's perfect as this very modern man who is charming and sensitive and relatable and selfish and arrogant and just utterly oblivious. (laughs) Yep. Ostland, the director, actually worked in a modern art museum, and it really shows because whilst he's poking fun at the incredibly obtuse nature of some of these exhibits, I really love the piles of glass um, that accidentally get partially cleaned later on into the film. (laughs) Some of them are actually really interesting. It's a really revealing <laughs> insight into the challenges of working in this very strange world. Mm. I think it might also be one of the most genuinely surprising films I've seen in a long while. On my first watch, I just couldn't imagine where the hell we were going to go next. And then on my second watch, I just felt that spark of excitement every time a scene started. Mm. Like, yes, it's this scene. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a sort of provocative film that really forces you to address how you treat the people around you. Mm. When you're watching Christian try to reconcile his liberal politics with yeah. real world situations without taking responsibility for his own actions a lot of the time that yeah. affect individual people in all these myriad but important ways. And then you've got this gentle poking of fun at this at the ex- at, um, modern art and yeah. in a way that reminded me of Reggie Watts' stand-up. Um, okay. Crossed, you know, if he were to be performing at the Tate Modern, it kind of... <laughs> Which he should. Yeah, which he, he definitely should. Best place but for him. Let's trap him. 2018, guys. <laughs> but it left me horrified and gobsmacked even th- you know, through my laughter. It's really yeah. intelligent. An ever-present uh, presence in the film is beggars and this idea of it's so awkward when you're in public and you ask someone else for help. And a lot of us sort mm. of screen out people now. And I think you get to this point where it just becomes too exhausting to care, which is a horrible idea. Yeah. And the film sort of questions, what would it exactly take to push you out of that, to actually help mm. someone who's asking you for help? Living in London, I'm approached by, you know, beggars and uh, panhandlers, whatever you want to call them, um, mm. multiple times a day, I think. And yeah. it does get to the point where it sort of saying, sorry, mate, I haven't got anything becomes like a reflex action. And yeah. you stop really thinking about the implications of it and what you're actually doing. And I think it's that sort of instinct that the film seeks to question and it desperately needs questioning. Yeah, it, it, made, it makes me think of how 
that response to to a beggar, which would be met with a response of, oh, you know, no, no worries, God bless, mate, have a good day, or something like that, yeah. would always make me feel like, oh, I'm a good, you know, I'm a good person for acknowledging this <laughs> I person. interacted. I didn't just stare at my yeah, book. And it, and it is exactly that kind of think, thinking that is just teased wide open <laughs> with, in, in, in the square. It's, it's something that I read about a lot in um, Canal Scores, mm. My Struggle Cycle as well. Being left wing to the point where you're completely disconnected from reality. Yeah. Obviously, Canal Score takes a sort of harder line against it. I don't think he enjoys living in Sweden. <laughs> I, I do believe that Austin does have a lot of faith in Sweden. He, when I, uh, he was at a Q&A, a screening I saw, and he talked about one night in 1960-something, it was decided mm. that uh, Sweden would switch to being on the left side of the road rather than the right side of the road, or the other way around, I forget. They're going to switch sides to yeah. the road. And overnight, yeah. everyone just did it. Like, the next morning, <laughs> everyone just... Yeah. got up and drove on the other side of the road and it was fine and there were fewer accidents <laughs> and i think he has a tremendous amount of faith in what that sort of organization and social contract yeah. can do but doesn't <laughs> so it, it's it is a sort of wake-up call rather than a everything sucks oh god i hate everything kind of thing. oh for sure <laughs> i hate to be yeah. unoriginal but my favorite scene is the centerpiece of the film uh, in which Hollywood actor Terry Notary plays a performer who has been commissioned to act like a wild animal at a banquet uh, in order to mm-hmm. provoke the guests and sort of try and get a reaction out of them. Um, only he doesn't know when to stop, so he just keeps terrorizing the people <laughs> even after the sort of event has been called to a close. <coughs> and I think it's just a great microcosm of the message yeah. of the film, which is what are you willing to tolerate so long as it's happening to someone else? And what does it actually take for you to put yourself in harm's way uh, for someone who needs help? As well as just being really fucking thrilling and kind of funny in a yeah. really fucked up way. No, exactly. It is the apotheosis of all of the ideas of the movie. Yeah. Just forced into this incredibly uncomfortable visual scene. <laughs> I've seen it twice now and on both occasions I was like sweating at the end of the sequence. It's just... You know, I, I found myself wondering what would I do in that situation? I'd yeah. like to think that I'd, I'd, I'd push him off. I'd like to think or I'd wrestle least... Terry Lottery to the ground, but <laughs> you never know. Hollywood actor. <laughs> yeah. I like, I, or at the very least, I'd do a Dominic West and exit Run away. Yeah. quickly. <laughs> talk, just yelling about how bullshit, how much bullshit this is. But <laughs> maybe I'd have just been like everyone else sitting with their head in their hands, just wishing to fuck that this moment will just end. <laughs> My favourite thing was the exchange between Elizabeth Moss yeah. and Christian, uh, where she is questioning his accountability yeah. and how he holds himself. There's one moment where she asks if he knows her name, and there's the, the, the pile chair. To, yeah, the, 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 the preposterous fucking ours exhibit the, behind them. Yeah, the pile chairs ex- exhibition rattles on, <laughs> and the, the 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 looping track of chairs, fifty chairs collapsing as he yeah. struggles to think of her name, and the, the look on her face is just pri- priceless. There's yeah. such a discord in that scene. It's absolutely awful. <laughs> All right, what's your number six? I believe it's your number five. Oh, good lord. Okay, mm. my number six is the killing of a sacred deer. Where did you two go? When the lights started out, they don't know what they heard. Strike the match, playing loud, giving love to the world. How did his father die? A surgeon never kills a patient. An anesthesiologist can kill a patient, but a surgeon never can. Oof. Last year, or 2015, I think, the lobster hit me like a fat bus. <laughs> like that. So, afterwards, I went back and watched uh, Dogtooth, and I was amazed by it. 
Mm-hmm. And now, Yorgos Lanthimos, one of the most singular directors working today, has made The Killing of a Sacred Deer. And it's, I think, my favourite of his weird animal trilogy. <laughs> this weird, freaky animal thing. <laughs> now now he's finished it, he's going to go back to making conventional films, rom-coms. <laughs> Killing of a Sacred Lost Guy in 10 Days. <laughs> Colin Farrell plays a brain surgeon who has a mysterious relationship with a boy played by Barry Cogan, uh, which threatens to affect his life. That's literally all I'm going to tell you about this film. I knew nothing going in and having only seen the bizarre trailer, and I think that's the only way to see it. Lanthimos is able to draw out the tension of the mystery really masterfully. Uh, you'll be confused for the first half, blown away by the second, but utterly hooked on the atmosphere throughout the entire thing. <sighs> The script is fantastic. The Lanthimos style of talking, which is like a even sleepier Wes Anderson, is back and still fabulous. Yeah, it's really funny, but I don't know. Somehow this effect makes everyone really pitifully human. Having everyone speak mm. as though they're in a learning English video just makes all of the characters seem really earnest and kind of sweet or naive. <laughs> they struggle like they're t- trying to do mathematics underwater. <laughs> There's a smoothness to it where I, I don't know how to describe it other than to just put a clip in here. Your son told me that you've got lots of hair under your arms, three times more than I do, and that you've got a very hairy back and a very hairy belly. I probably do have a little more hair than you do because I'm older than you, but soon you'll have more hair too. But there's something really endearing about it, I find. Um, yeah. Especially when you have great performances. Um, I particularly love Rafi Cassidy and Barry Cogan, who really take this material and... Um, offer something really affecting in their performances. <laughs> yeah. Or sinister, as it may be. Lanthimos is taking cues from Kubrick here. Oh, fuck, I didn't even mm. hear that until I just said it. Cues from Kubrick. The Kubrick cues. <laughs> the cues our new, <laughs> our new section. <laughs> Weekly segment. Cues brick. You've got the gorgeously sparse set design in the hospital. You've got these wonderful gliding, tracking shots that seem to chase characters through the endless hallways. And the film has no original score, I was surprised to find out. Um... Except for some accordion cues. Uh, It's almost entirely comprised of pre-existing music, some of which is by Kubrick favourite Georgie Leggetti. The effect of all of this is that it just has a dreamlike effect, and it's a psychological horror that's just completely engaging. Yeah. Leaves you absolutely helpless. It's fucking bizarre, <laughs> and it's just magical. Every single moment of it. Yeah. Uh, m- much like the lobster, you're holding your head in your hands, <laughs> wondering how on earth am I going to relate to anything in this film because it's so bizarre, and yet, look, it's just burrowing right down into my soul. <laughs> look, it's just humanity stripped bare for you. <laughs> ah, wonderful. There's something so unsettling about it and the atmosphere. It's definitely a horror film, but I don't know what the horror yeah. is. And uh, having said that, my favourite scene just has to be the reveal scene where you finally find out what's happening between oh, these characters. God, yeah. uh, it comes at the midpoint, and it's just electrifying. It's brilliantly acted, wonderfully scored, and I, I think provoked a physical reaction on my part. Like, I may have gasped or yelped. Mm. Um, it's just brilliantly twisted, like the rest of the film. Yeah, I mean, that scene itself is revolting in, in a couple of ways, and yeah, it will stick with me. <laughs> Ah, oh, good stuff. What's your number five? My number five is Misogynist Snorathon Blade Runner 2049. Snooze. Well, nothing even happened. I, well, I fell asleep. Was it good? I'll just say so. I like Blade Runner. <laughs> I like to look important. <laughs> what better way to do that with uh, this pretentious piece of shit? Every leap of civilization was built off the back of slaves. Replicants are the future, but I can only make so many. 
Denny Villeneuve does it again. Yay. He delivers a film so absurdly perfect in so many ways that it's a wonder I still have a face. <laughs> a direct sequel to the original. If anyone had any doubts about this in light of the original, don't worry. It manages yeah. to be faithful and respectful to the original whilst building on it with the story of the blackout and what happened to Deckard in the interim, along as, as well as um, with a new industry that's taken the place of the old. Mm. New characters, new uh, pressures, uh, new technology, and mm. it looks incredible. It sounds like sweet, sweet machinery. The Hans Zimmer soundtrack sounds like it was the late, great Johan Johansson doing an impression of Hans Zimmer, mm. uh, but which, I mean, it was just pure power in more than just an auditory sense it yeah. gets right under your eyelids behind the nose it's the perfect example of where a good film doesn't feel its length because it's mm. such an incredible world brought to screen here every second of that two hours and 45 minutes is as immersive as the last and also happy day roger deakins finally won an oscar for best cinematography in this film and you can see why. Yeah. It's pure precision and it's so intuitive. As I said, it did have, there were some claims of misogyny leveled at it from mm. some quarters, but I think this is more a case of a, of a film set in a misogynistic society. Definitely. It follows quite naturally from the world we see in the original. Mm. Um, Ryan Gosling played to his dramatic, dramatic strengths. Harrison Ford looked like he gave a shit. Yeah. Robin Wright played a character with great tragedy and Sylvia Hoax was just fucking terrifying. Yeah. She's great. Oh, god so this this was your number this was my number nine absolutely and yeah it's it's a gorgeous film and it's i love its atmosphere i love the time it takes to tell its story i love how much of this little futuristic society we actually see and seeing ryan gosling's character going about his life is just gorgeous and and yeah that soundtrack really does pick up on all of the tender moments and the sort of big bombastic ones i would say my third favorite soundtrack of the year nice get more into Mm -hmm. that later uh, yeah. What was uh, your favourite moment? The memory engineer. Ooh. Oh, gosh, gotcha. yeah. to her, it epitomises the detail and inventiveness Denny Villeneuve continues to bring to cinema. Yeah. Her as a character, Perfect. she is just so brilliant. <laughs> I just, She's so different from everyone else that you meet. So pure and innocent. Yeah. And un- unaffected by the world outside, which is grimy and yeah. wasted. It's the scene where um, Ryan Gosling's character encounters the giant hologram woman. Which I think what oh, that yeah. what that scene is achieving and what it's doing is so bold <laughs> in terms of hmm. the the impact it has on the implications of so much of the earlier film. Yeah. And it's so disturbing and kind of bleak that I just didn't accept what it was the first time I saw it. And it took a few watches before I realized, oh, that's what they've done here with this scene. And anyone who's just seeing a giant naked sexualized woman is just missing that that's exactly Everything. what this is that's exactly yeah. what this is it's a giant <laughs> sexualized woman and what that means is really nihilistic in a really yep. brave way so yeah that really is an extraordinary thing to have done what a day what a day all right my number five is call me by your name Woo! is there anything you don't know boundless by the time i cry you only knew how little i know about the things that matter build your walls around what things that matter? White noise, what an awful sound. You know what things. You're saying what I think you're saying. Shouldn't have said anything. Just pretend you never did. After 2015's A Bigger Splash, uh, Luca Guadagnino returns us to the sun-soaked, idyllic locale to explore desire. Uh, although much less disturbingly this time, it has to be said. Uh, we have <laughs> we have Elio. Yeah a young man living in his parents' holiday home in Italy. 
And we have Oliver, a classic student who has come to stay with the family. As the summer peaks and wanes, they find each other. What I love most about Call Me By Your Name is the palpable sense of nostalgia and the morose feeling that the story has already finished when it starts. Most of the film is devoted to the two men being wary of each other and not communicating well, and Elio just experiencing all the excitement and frustration and angst and nothing and everything of courtship. Mm. By the time they actually break through each other's defences, the summer is all but gone. Um, The film is set in 1983, and the style of music at this already gone period permeates everything. And because the characters all study classics, there is this haunting presence throughout of the sort of beautiful statues and music and poetry made by people who are long dead, begging to be heard through the centuries, urging the future generations to feel fully and fearlessly. Um, And the film is doing the same. Mm. Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer are superb their chemistry is effortless and really convincing chalamet is charming and relatable whilst hammer manages this sort of self this elusive self-confidence uh that's intoxicating and really frustrating yeah <laughs> michael stuhlberg is my new favorite movie dad uh he's a- <laughs> he beats uh, last year's david wenham <laughs> uh he's sensitive and loving and quietly morose and yeah then we have the breathtaking cinematography that powerfully invokes this gorgeous summer uh, in a perfect place languid editing that puts you in the haze of old memories and then you've got the music sufian stevens wrote these extraordinary extraordinarily powerful pieces of music for the film and they all bespeak that melancholy of times past and then you've just got the sort of yeah the presence of the older music the piano music all written by people who were at some stage young not anymore now long dead (laughs) yeah but they left something behind place and the setting is so magical it's fantastical in its own Mm. special way the 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 time the relationships between these characters are so like you said there's such an ease and it's such a a funny and charming ease to yeah the the what the way life just proceeds in this sleepy Mm. italian town yeah um it's so funny and smart and i i remember i remember that film like I would remember a holiday ten years ago. It's 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 a place that I've been. Yeah. Because of this film. It's it's a location, an island that I've been on, and I <laughs> cannot wait to go back. Yeah. What was it on your list? Number six. Number six. Gorgeous. In terms of favourite moments, I'd say um anything in which Army Hammer dr- uh, dances has a special place in my heart now. <laughs> just yep. uh, the disco sequences and him just dancing next to an old car. <laughs> Beautiful. Yep. Um, but my favourite moment, I do believe that the film is more about the impact of the relationship on the main character than it is about that relationship, um, yeah. hence hence the title. Um, so my favourite moment mm. doesn't come from the whirlwind romance, but rather a very devastating moment between Elio and his father, where he offers some advice to his heartbroken son. Yeah, I would say that any moment of self-realisation from Elio is, is pretty great and pretty memorable, and yeah. it, you know that's what the, the film does so so well but yeah it would have to be his conversation with his dad at the end uh, the the row of gay men in front of me in the cinema weeping is testament to how perfect <laughs> everything he articulated in that scene was it wouldn't have been the same film without those gay men yeah what is your number four so at this stage any of my top four could have been number one it mm. all depends on the day and this is what I decided tonight so Number four with a sad little bullet, loving Vincent. Vincent van Gogh killed himself. How does a man go from calm to suicidal in six weeks? I don't see the point in delivering a dead man's letter. Son, 
If you had died and there was a letter out there that you had sent to me, I'd want it. Directed by Dorota Kobila and Hugh Welchman. It stars Douglas Booth, Jerome Flynn, Chris O'Dowd, Saoirse Ronan, Helen McCrory and others. Uh, a young man journeys to Vincent van Gogh's hometown in order to deliver his final letter, unearthing the mystery behind his death as he travels. Mm. Now, this film is probably best known for being animated entirely in oil paintings, and yeah. it looks like nothing I've seen before. Mm. It is impeccably beautiful. Where Blade Runner was doing something with the landscapes in its bleak, dystopian way, I don't think any other kind of animation properly captures the beauty of nature uh, like Loving Vincent does, mm. or the, the nuance on a person's face. So it's worth seeing for that alone, and that's initially why I wanted to see it, but this film has a particular melancholy at its heart that's stuck with me since watching it. Mm. As established in, a, in previous top tens, the artist's method and struggle are favourite topics of mine, and this was an enchanting mix of the two. An artist malign in his lifetime who spent three quarters of it meandering before realising mm. his gift working ceaselessly despite ridicule it's a very simple and human story with some great voice acting and my second favourite soundtrack of the year by Clint Mansell <laughs> oh yeah it's 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 fantastic I'm running out of adjectives here what I love about cinema are the films that surprise me and take my mm. heart on unexpected journeys and this was one of those experiences mm. my uh, my one good thing would I particularly like the interactions between Douglas Booth and Chris O'Dowd as as yeah. son and father. There was a lot of life and death in what they said and didn't say, and um, it really sets the mood for the rest of the film. I was very surprised by how accessible the structure of the film is, because it takes the very familiar uh, murder mystery route, um, in which yes. you have a character sort of interviewing the various people who knew Van Gogh and sort of having them tell their part of the story. It allows for some really great episodes, and at the heart of the whole thing is just this story of how a small society treats a man who has mental health issues in various ways, yep. and that's a really provocative subject. Absolutely, and it's it's a film that draws people in, I think, with the, the premise and mm. the, the gimmick, but sure. once you're there, it's actually got the content to keep you. Okay, my number four is Ladybird. Mm, my number ten. Hooray! I want you to be the very best version of yourself that you can be. What if this is the best version? Greta Gerwig's directorial debut is fantastically well accomplished. Uh, Saoirse Ronan plays Ladybird, a name she gave to herself. Um, a 17-year-old who has to contend with college applications, class snobbery, some boys, and her mother, played by Laurie Metcalf. Mm. Gerwig originally approached her longtime collaborator Noah Baumbach to direct the film, uh, but she ultimately decided that that would end up becoming his project, so she wanted to direct it herself. Um, and thank God she did, because as much oh, as I relief. as much as I occasionally enjoy Baumbach's work, <laughs> there is something <laughs> very authentic about this film. Um, the life portrayed in it feels lived in and through. Uh, the awkward little moments are just so keenly observed, and it's really funny throughout, but the the pains of embarrassment or rejection and the joys of catharsis are really real. <laughs> they feel authentic. Yeah. Um, and having recently watched Loving Vincent, Saoirse Ronan has to be one of the most versatile actors working at the moment. Um, what Loving Vincent made me do was really pay attention to the nuances in the actor's performance, and it's the little details where Ronan excels. Just the way she sits on stuff or carries herself is so evocative of youth. Uh, she's really brilliant in this, and sort of sassy and confident and yet also really vulnerable throughout the whole thing. Yeah. 
uh, I mean, what I love most about Lady Bird is that it's like a Nurbaumbach film, but the characters are better written than Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Greta Gerwig has made something mm. beautiful with this film. Yeah. The, there is not one character that was left mm. unwritten or half-heartedly done. Absolutely. It's just so fucking funny and cool. Yeah. There's no cynicism or un- unnecessary quirkiness. Mm. It's a film that feels like it stripped away a lot of the defenses that quirky indie comedies will put up so that it can avoid being truly heartfelt. The sort of, yeah. you know, weirdness of the characters or the abstract dialogue. It just strips all that yeah. away just to show actual people. And it's very brave of them. And y- y- like you say, no character is left unturned. You have, like, yeah. tiny moments, like... The drama teacher who's clearly got some sort of terrible tragedy going on in his life. Oh, God, yeah. And he's got, like, three scenes, but he does so much. <sighs> they do so much with him in those moments, and mm. it's just gorgeous. Um, it's a film that offers real insight, and I love it because I found myself loving Lady Bird and her friends and her yeah. family to the point where when it finished, I was genuinely sad I wouldn't get to see any more of these characters. My favorite scene is when she finally shows up at prom with the person she was definitely meant to be there with. Um, yeah, it's adorable and very sweet. My favorite moment is so the girlfriend of the adopted brother is a yeah. lefty vegan goth, as far as I can tell. But <laughs> in the moment she says shares a spliff with Lady Bird, they have this conversation about Lady Bird's mum, played by played amazingly by Laurie Metcalf, that yeah. immediately shows that she's a real human being, capable of thought and changing her mind. And I realized yeah. how rare it is to see that in secondary characters. Yeah, supporting characters That's are just great. handled so well in this film. Ah, excellent. What's your number three? Well, it's your number one, sir. Holy shit! Fuck! It's my it's my it's big favoritist. <laughs> well, I better leave that well the fuck alone then. <laughs> okay, all right then. My number three is Dunkirk. <gasps> <laughs> Rave on the beaches. Where are we going? Dunkirk. I'm not going back. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. If we go there, we'll die. Now, war movies can be very bloated affairs sometimes. Um, I recently watched The Longest Day, which is also the <laughs> longest movie. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, 65-year-old movie. <laughs> Idiots. The, the, the backlash starts here. <laughs> um, the Longest Day cuts around many different protagonists at different stratas of the war, and it's very good, but it's pretty exhausting at nearly three hours long. So... What would happen if you stripped out a war movie to have all the superfluous characters, all of the, you know, heading back to base, took out everything except the experience of warfare and desperately trying to survive mm. in a horrible situation? You get you get Lady Bird, which also <laughs> stripped out the comedy, the warfare. Christopher Nolan brings various trademarks to Dunkirk. There's yeah. a tricky narrative structure that, as previously discussed, is actually pretty intuitive and mm-hmm. brilliantly allows Nolan to tell the story he wanted to tell with no excess. There's a reliance on practical effects, which actually forced him to dial back on the action. Um, to brilliant effect, actually. I see. Mm-hmm. I keep seeing historians complain that there were actually hundreds of destroyers at Dunkirk and, you know, the beaches aren't busy enough and all of this, but... The effect of bringing this down to a smaller scale is that the action remains relatable Mm. and there's actually a better sense of scale. Showing one destroyer gradually tip over and fall into the ocean and experiencing this three times, gradually getting closer to it each time, Mm. is so much more meaningful than just having hundreds of ships exploding in the distance. Um, Yeah, and I think it really helps the drama. So, But what's new, apart from Nolan's trademarks, what's new is... Uh, this is Nolan's new, leanest story. It's 106 mm. minutes. There's only a handful of settings, and it's just relentless. Boat, 
not a boat, plane, <laughs> sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One um, of them back in time, Nolan. though. <sighs> oh, no, shit. No, it's just the future in the Tesseract. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Imagine if you put a film through the Marvel Avengers Tesseract. I think it'll go a little bit <laughs> like this. <laughs> Nolan cited movies like Speed or Wages of Fear as being influences rather than other war films. Yeah. And I think that shows because it's a, it's kind of a tense action mm. movie, I hate to say, more than anything else. And yet, one that veterans found much more relatable than fucking Pearl Harbor. No. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> it's just a film that gets you on edge in its first few minutes and then doesn't lose its grip on your pulse until the very end. Um, and along the way are some brilliantly yep. edited moments of action, peril, and some really terrifying stories of survival. Yeah, it is a tense, beautiful anus of a film. <laughs> it's coming at you. <laughs> My favourite scene is difficult, because this is a mood piece that has the power to, has its power in being such a cohesive whole. Uh, but mm. I'm going to say... Ugh, you've ruined whole now. <laughs> Have I? But I'm going to say it's the sequence near the climax... Where Tom Hardy shoots that... Shut up. <laughs> Don't make me come over there. <laughs> 2017's going down in flames. <laughs> Look, we're near Tom Hardy's climax. And he pops his load into an enemy... Yep. Into an enemy bogey. His last one in the film. Yep. Uh, and then he just kind of soars majestically in a plane that's run out of fuel over the coast of Dunkirk. And he... He opens his cockpit window and just enjoys the air, so sort of trying to make the moment last a little longer before he has to deal with what happens next. Yeah. <laughs> Nazis. No, no, Nazis. Nazis. Endless Nazis. Nazis. <laughs> Nazis for days, mate. Okay, your number two. My number two is your number two. <gasps> oh, we've been here. Enough. Stop it. No. Okay, you do it. All right, then. Um, <laughs> my number two was a real relief after Seven Psychopaths. Yes. It was any movie after Seven Psychopaths. Yeah. <laughs> My short film, a real relief after Seven Psychopaths. <laughs> to see Martin McDonough not only return to form, but come with something at times even darker and funnier and more insightful than in Bruges. Yeah. Uh, it's three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri. My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks to solve actual crime. What the hell is this? more insightful because of the moments of realisation and growth it affords its characters and the redemption or not. Great cast, incredibly well-written characters. Frances McDormand deserved mm. the Oscar, I think. She oh, was God, yeah. incredible. The, the the anger and the grief. Um, mm. I don't think I actually knew specifically what was on the billboards until I saw the film. I, I think the trailer that I saw didn't actually reveal... The trailer showed the, the, two out of the, three the of them. The beefy one. Yeah, it didn't yeah. show the punch in the face the main course yeah yeah so it's best that i don't say anything because the reveal is is, is yeah. pretty big it is but she plays she plays it amazingly sam rockwell and woody harrison as supporting oh, characters so some of the best performances of the year um again i was thrilled that sam rockwell won um best supporting actor mm. and the dynamic of all, all of these supporting ca um characters the police it's sometimes sometimes shocking sometimes upsetting it's always hilarious takes you by the balls from the first minute and it doesn't let go until you're fully caught up in this need for vengeance for what was done <laughs> to Francis McDormand. But yeah. ultimately, it's the message of forgiveness and acceptance that inches it past in Bruce for me. Again, an another film that was, was mired in so-called controversy 
this year yeah. um, because of the the so-called redemptive arc given to Sam Rockwell. I'm mm. pretty sure Martin well, Madonna has come out and said, was, was it redemptive? Well, yeah, or lack thereof, um, some people say. Because yeah. he doesn't end the film, definitely not a racist anymore. Therefore, it's yeah. sort of supporting racism. Oh, my God. Imagine having a, a realistic character that, that changes and has external factors. Yeah. Uh, contributing to his worldview. Lunacy. Left-wing nonsense. Yeah, I think what we're seeing with him is the beginnings of a journey. He's he's not completely changed overnight by his experience, but he's on his way to taking the sort of advice that he's been given to use love. Yeah. You know, oh he, man, there were s- several yeah. moments in this in this film, several clear moments that affected him yeah. in a po- in a positive way. It wasn't just this arc that was unearned. There's a sickness in the town, and you know it contributes to and it sort of it leads to changes in these people. And, and 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 come the end of the film, there's no definitive arc, I suppose. Mm. But like you said, it's it's the beginnings. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. But I couldn't help but feel optimistic. No, absolutely. Violence does beget greater violence, and yeah. the characters are starting to learn that by the end. It, it plays yeah. out kind of like a farce sometimes, like the characters being where, exactly where they need to be, and sort of in order to learn their big lesson. And it just it gives it a sort of mythic quality to it. This is like a shaggy dog story that you're being told of this little town mm. and how it got wrapped up in this extraordinary circumstance. And yeah, that darkly comedic tone makes it really accessible and just really fun it allows it to explore some yeah very deep stuff i mean my one my one good thing is um there's a, a moment of a moment of mercy shown to sam rockwell by caleb landry jones's character mm, who's great in this um oh who's fantastic in it as well mm. there's about five minutes of the film that is the emotional fulcrum i think right everything hinges on this on this not hinges everything's balanced on this centerpiece yeah and this is, I think, this is the this is the be- the beginning of the rest of the film for me, and it's just so so important. It's just so human from both characters, mm. and I, I was just relieved that it wasn't going to explode into a <laughs> McDonough bit of ultra violence. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It's always reassuring that that doesn't massively. happen. <laughs> My favorite moments would have to be one of Woody Harrelson's uh, letters that gets opened and read at various stages, oh, yeah. or this wonderful moment early on in the film where. Harrelson is interrogating Mildred um, and they're sort of you know getting at each other and they're really antagonizing each other in quite an aggressive way when um, suddenly Woody Harrelson's character coughs some blood and um, suddenly the dynamic just completely fucking changes altogether and you realize that all of this is just a game being played by two people and that when you know push comes to shove they care for each other and it's yeah pretty extraordinary yeah it hammers him just how how small the town is at that stage yeah okay well that was both of our number twos well hey um don't tell anyone that was that so there's nothing left to do now except to talk about 40 more films yeah so we're gonna quickly do our honorable mentions in the form of our numbers 30 through 11 we're gonna go real quick on this one guys we're not gonna dawdle and then we shall reveal to you our favorite films of the year my number 30 was raw a daughter from a vegan family goes to veterinary school and discovers she has cannibalistic tendencies shockingly funny pretty disgusting does what the best horrors do and transcends the genre become becoming something so much more absolutely my number 30 is brigsby bear a really sweet movie about a guy who is obsessed with a children's tv show much to his parents chagrin constantly surprising uncompromisingly sentimental and very dryly funny my number 29 is ingrid goes west yay this is a horror film and it would never be anything (laughs) else to me ingrid played by aubrey plaza goes to la to become 
become friends with a celebrity she stalks on social media. Mm. Uh, amazing performance by Plaza. It's truly horrifying. Great comedy. Uh, my number 29 is Logan Lucky, a brilliant heist film from the master Steven Soderbergh. Welcome back. Who is about... Oh, yes. It's about some lower class trailer park types who decide to rob a speedway. Uh, it's exciting, clever, and has some really great performances, especially from Daniel Craig. Stunt casting, maybe, but what a stunt. Absolutely. My number 28 is Brigsby Bear. Yay. It's kind of like Napoleon Dynamite meets Room, if you'd allow me the boulderization. Uh, it's sweet, funny, very inventive. Number 28, John Wick, Chapter 2. Boff. More Keanu Reeves, self-aware hilarity, and more extraordinarily choreographed gunfights and fight fights. My number 27, Logan. I'm Yay. really glad it snuck into my top 30. A fitting, competent, and heart-wrenching end to the Wolverine story. Uh, my number 27 is Death of Stalin, a very dark comedy about the days yeah. following director Joseph Stalin. Director. A very dark... <laughs> famous director, director of Russian genocide. <laughs> oh, I've seen that. A, a very dark comedy about the days following dictator Joseph Stalin's death as his underlings vie for power, with hilarious results. Mm. It's uh, brilliantly funny as Amanda Iannucci's projects always are, but it's also kind of haunting. My number 26, Coco. Disney yeah. Pixar gone done it again. On the day of the dead, <laughs> a boy is trapped in the land of the dead and has to find his maligned relative by morning or be trapped there. As ever, it's refreshingly funny, and it has the added bonus of being about making art, which, as everyone knows, is what does it for me. 26, Spider-Man Homecoming. My new favourite Spider-Man movie. We have a likeable and entertaining (laughs) Peter Parker, played by Tom Holland, and some really cool action sequences that you can almost always expect from Marvel, and a really cool exploration of the tension between being Peter and being Spidey. 25 for me is The Disaster Artist. Ah. James and Dave Franco do a stunning job of telling the story of the room and and absolutely knock it out of the park performance-wise. So funny and compelling, I barely even notice my incredible social anxiety when watching it. (laughs) And again, it's about making art and the sort of joys of filmmaking, even if your director is a bit of a dictator, a bit of a Joseph Stalin type. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) <laughs> 25 good time uh, a tense psychological thriller starring robert pattinson as a man trying to cheat lie and steal to raise his brother's bail money uh things get crazy as he travels deeper into the dark city night it's just baffling but really exciting and really interesting <laughs> number 24 for me is gifted bit of an unsung gem this yeah. a story of a custody battle over a gifted child between her uncle played by chris evans and grandmother played by lindsay duncan mm. Evans and Duncan have an extremely complicated relationship that holds up under the full length of the film. McKenna Grace is great as the child. Octavia Spencer is reliably powerful, and there's just a hell of a lot of heart here. Uh, My 24 is Phantom Fred. The new Paul Thomas Anderson film is a dark character study about a a fusty London dressmaker, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's final and powerful uh, performance, um, who seduces an equally stubborn waitress. Uh, it's all about their relationship and how they are each fucked up in just the right way for each other. 23 for me. <laughs> Legs 11. <laughs> Detroit. I wanted this film higher and it hurt to watch it slide down as the year went on, but mm. uh, well, what can you do? Catherine Bigelow's telling of one story amid the Detroit riots is as tense and difficult to watch as anything this year with John yeah. Boyega and Will Poulter and others gripping us by the face and dragging us through <laughs> one indescribably hellish night. Fuck Poulter's terrifying. 23. Mother! 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 Darren Aronofsky's bizarre psychological horror about a loser, about a woman losing her mind during about a, a ho- loser, about a loser, <laughs> about a woman losing her mind during a home invasion. Just about. Hmm. Uh, beautifully filmed, genuinely upsetting experience from beginning to end. Twenty-two. Proud to say I called this one in our first ever episode, and now fucking watch and learn literally the rest of DC and Warner Brothers. <laughs> Patty Jenkins shows you how to make a DC movie with Yay. Wonder Woman. Believable threat until the end. Relatable characters and a movie worth fighting for. Good bloody work. 
22 Wind River, as we've already said, a dark but compelling story of yeah. an urgent new perspective on an often neglected aspect of society with brilliant performances by Avengers actors Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 21 for me, Shape of Water. Mm. Uh, for me, Guillermo del Toro's return to peak form, a grotesque mm. fairy tale with some truly, literally awesome performances from Sally Hawkins, Richard Jenkins, yeah. Michael Shannon, Octavia Spencer, and new dad of the year, Michael Stuhlbarg. Gorgeous stuff. <laughs> 21. A Ghost Story. One of the stranger films of the year, but easily one of the most affecting. Great performances and really exciting, subversive direction and writing. Cool. Number 20 is I, Tonya. Margot Robbie gets uh, the role she deserved here, and I wouldn't have been miffed if she got the Oscar. The tale of Tonya Harding from multiple points of view. Both Robbie and Alice and Janney inject this film with so much spite, it's blowing out the ears. <laughs> 20, The Florida Project. A beautiful story of a not-quite-working-class mother and daughter and the struggles they experience in their Florida motel home. Uh, It's episodic, but all of the episodes are insightful and often upsetting. Uh, There's great performances, particularly from Willem Dafoe, who is so reassuringly humane amongst all of the disinterest and rage in this little hotel. 19. Okja. As mentioned in last week's episode, Bong Joon-ho's film about a super pig that's also about animal agriculture uh, looks closely at the cognitive dissonance involved in killing animals for food, but posts gentle fun at animal liberation too, so manages to come off as the opposite of polemical. (laughs) It's shocked a lot of people, and it's got all the flair and dystopian style of his previous film Snowpiercer. Not much out there like it. Speaking of not much out there like it, number 19, Lady Macbeth. Uh, An oppressed Mm. woman living under Victorian rule rises up against her male oppressors, but doesn't get to remain the good guy whilst doing it. A uh, brilliant study of a very volatile character played menacingly by Florence Pugh, who's brilliant, uh, and gorgeously filmed by William Oldroyd with cinematographer Ari Wegner. Really great sort of psychological thriller costume drama. Mm. 18 is Spider-Man Homecoming, one hey. of my favourite Marvel films, period. Yay. Not only completely rejuvenated the Spider-Man franchise, but really appreciated the narrow focus with the personal battles and the contained risk, as opposed to the world-ending stuff of other Marvel films. Tom Holland's utterly charming. In fact, the rest of the cast hit the mark every time and the comedy was absolutely on point. Can't wait to see where he goes next. Probably up a wall. (laughs) Does whatever a Spider-Man can. Gets on a wall. (laughs) All right. Spider now. (laughs) Spider-Man. My number 18 is Baby Driver. Edgar Wright's Mm. bank heist movie, and that really ought to be enough to sell it. But it sees Ansel Elgort as a young man with tinnitus who just happens to be one of the best getaway drivers around, as well as just a nice, God. charming guy. Uh, it's, oh. got a lot of, it's got all of the amazing editing and action and music and joy that you would expect, and it's just a really fun treat. Num- number 17, Phantom Thread. Woo. Paul Thomas Anderson's latest about a demanding dressmaker and his new muse. Getting into the realms of fantasy, I thought, which I wasn't expecting of a film set firmly in shitty England, but Daniel Day-Lewis, Leslie Manville and Vicky Creeps make this pretty magical stuff. Number 17, it comes at night. A not-so-fun treat. Oh. Uh, this is a tense horror film set in some sort of post-catastrophe future where a small family must decide whether or not to risk their safety to save the lives of some fellow humans. Very understated, very frightening, and intense throughout, and Joel Edgerton is amazing. Shit, that's a good film. Number 16 for me is Killing of a Sacred Deer. We've gone Woo. gone through it before. Lo- the, the lobster-esque, dog-tooth-esque exploration into something. <laughs> Don't t- take it from me. Go and watch the film. Raw. Again, we've already talked about it, but a really playful yet disturbing horror film about a young vegetarian girl, vegan girl, sorry, who goes to a veterinary school only to find she's developing a taste for human flesh. It's very strange. Oh. Ki- 
kind of funny but utterly captivating and a great soundtrack too number 15 dunkirk yay it's my first ever nolan film that didn't make it into my top 10 which shows more than anything just what kind of a year in film it was yeah can't take away from the fact that it's so very tense the mm. directing and cinematography as ever are perfect it's hard to find fault with it really mm. so yeah. i recommend it heartily it's worth saying actually this is the first time since um insomnia that christopher nolan has directed a film in a year that didn't end up being my favorite film of that year and i think that says less about cool. dunkirk than it does about how amazing the rest of christopher nolan's career has been number 15 war for the planet of the apes uh, the third and final part of the apes prequel trilogy sees the apes and humans at full-on war with each other uh, Andy Serkis' Caesar must lead the apes to a new home and away from the vicious forces of Woody Harrelson. Uh, it's epic, it's provocative, and actually brings a tear to my eye a couple of times during its runtime. Number 14, The Death of Stalin. Yay. I really wanted this to be in my top 10. Funniest oh. film of the year. Such an incredible cast to go with Armando Iannucci's genius brand of comedy. Picks up where the Pythons left off. Yeah, and Simon Russell Beale is so fucking great in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's my favourite. God, yeah. My number 14, speaking of comedy, is Ingrid Goes West. A uh, funny and insightful horror comedy. It's really funny, painfully painfully relatable, and fabulously off the wall. Plaza Olsen and O'Shea Jackson Jr. are the best. Number 13, God's Own Country. Again, I wanted this to be higher, but here it is at number 13. Yeah. It's one of the most viscerally beautiful love stories I've ever seen, and hopefully I get a chance to talk more about it at a later date because it deserves a whole episode. <laughs> if, we ever, if we ever review a really terrible gay romance movie... Or a really terrible <laughs> movie set in Yorkshire. We'll uh, we'll do it as a one better thing. It. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Logan. Yes. At thirteen, um, I've been in love with the X Men since two thousand, and Logan just feels like a beautiful way of tying it all off. Even though it's obviously not. Um, it's bittersweet and intelligent, and of course thrilling. The violent action is the best that Wolverine has ever been involved in. I wouldn't love this movie if not for Daphne Keane, who is extraordinary as the fierce but charismatic young Laura. Oh, God, yeah. But it's also just Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart at their franchise best. When are we going to be at our franchise best? <laughs> Wait for episode 142 when it gets meta. <laughs> it's going to be a big one, guys. <laughs> Number 12, The Big Sick. Ooh. It's one of those pleasant surprises going in not knowing what to expect, but manages to be equal parts hilarious and heartbreaking comedy about love and family in a very unexpected way. Yeah. Just uh, amazing performances all around, cutting and funny. And it manages to be this high on my list despite the stand-up within the film not being funny at all. Yeah. Which <laughs> just goes to show how great a film the rest of it is. Yeah. Come on, yeah. Bo Burnham, you know better than this. <laughs> Number 12, The Shape of Water, a heartfelt mm. plea for understanding and humanity from Guillermo del Toro, and a profoundly sweet story about a mute woman and her unusual lover. It's an exciting story of escape, a moving story of a love that doesn't give a fuck about societal norms. Uh, lots of interesting subplots and great characters, but driven by Sally Hawkins in a fantastic lead role. In a fantastic car. <laughs> now, 11. Mother! Ah! Touch and go whether this would be in my top 10, but it was pushed out by films that i feel i could watch more than twice <laughs> is it a film about mother nature as aronofsky and lawrence said or is mm. it about aronofsky himself his creative process and the damage he causes to other people yeah. it's probably the first one because they said so but to me it <laughs> meant something more and it's just spellbindingly comprehensively mm. awful in the best way possible my number 11 and the hardest one to cut from my top 10 is god's own country yeah. the story of um hard-won love in the yorkshire countryside a young farmer is initially resentful of the romanian hired help who comes to assist on the farm until they bond over some pot noodle and some lamb evisceration. It's a stark tale of the of love in the roughest of circumstances. And I just yeah. love the performances of the parents he has too, who may also be the grandparents. Yeah. I'm, not, it's, 
a little it's left a little ambiguous by the sort of baffling terms that people have up there <laughs> just all just all vowels <laughs> the the dad slash granddad played by professor Quirrell. Mm. oh yes weird. of course yeah yeah oh, gorgeous paul yes paul what was your favorite film of 2017 the very best one that renders everything else we've talked about utter shite well paul let me tell you 2017's best film starring casey affleck it's manchester by the sea yay oh, brilliant love it oh, i love that film a ghost story oh. when i was little and we used to move all the time i'd write these notes and I would fold them up really small. And I would hide them so that if I ever wanted to go back, there'd be a piece of me there reading. Directed by David Lowry, starring Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, I went in not knowing what to expect and it blew my mind a little. Rewatching it a couple of weeks ago, I was worried that that initial overwhelm, I'm winking because I made a reference to the film, <laughs> might have influenced my reaction to it. But I was just as gripped this time, maybe even more so knowing what to expect. Yeah. The the plot, what can I say about the plot without spoiling it completely? It's really best just to go in having, at the very most, seen the poster. Yeah. I, I don't want to say anything more about it. Mm. Let me just say, I think it really depends on the audience's willingness to go with what the film is showing you. Yeah. And like I said, I'm not going to go into the plot, apart from the fact that it's a love story between two people, Affleck and Rooney Mara, but their relationship is so rich and real in just the first 10 minutes of the film that yeah. everything else that happens after is mm. near perfect. The, the film is haunting, not in a horror way, in a nice way. <laughs> Lingering shots that tell the story without a word being needed and mm. my absolute favourite soundtrack of the year by Daniel Hart. Yeah, It, it, it is just auditory ecstasy. <laughs> it could just be the ecstasy that I was on. It's a film about love, uh, which I love told in a totally unique way and without any excess whatsoever. Hmm. This film is a properly life-affirming experience. Yeah, it really is. It's There are just so, so many beautiful moments mm. that you can barely even see the faces of the people the film is about <laughs> and you know exactly what's going on. The You know why everything is, is happening and there's barely there's barely a word spoken after the 10th minute of the film yeah i can't wait to watch it again mm. if i had to pick the one good thing about the film it's the end and i don't mean that in a <laughs> in a in an og team oh it finished yeah sort of way but all, all i will say about the end it doesn't matter what it was just that it was yeah absolutely like bill murray whispering something at scarlett johansson exactly exactly be in a marvel movie <laughs> I'm going to go and have a cry now. <laughs> Whilst Paul's off crying, I will tell you about my favourite film of the year. Get Out! What? It, it, oh, it. the film, I get it. Do you smoke in front of my daughter? I'm going to quit. She'd take care of that for you. How? Hypnosis. I'm good, actually. Are you ready for this? I'm back in the beat. So look, I go do my research... Apparently, a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb. But it's cool. Bro, how you not scared of this, man? My number three. Yay. Um, a young black man goes to meet his white girlfriends, white parents in the white-ass country. Uh, they all seem to be smiles and harmless, maybe, assumptions. But there may be something more sinister than liberal awkwardness going on. 
Will Chris figure out what these creepy people are up to, and will he be able to leave? <laughs> Go away quickly. <laughs> to excavate hurriedly. Oh, get out. How do I love you? Let me actually count the ways. <laughs> Firstly, it is an excellent horror film, which really frightens and disturbs me. Chris's dream about the deer is brilliantly sinister and one of my all-time favorite match cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also a great thriller with a palpable, breathable sense of unease throughout the entire thing. It's the dictionary definition of creepy in that the unease comes from not knowing whether you should be afraid or not. Uh, there are fabulously tense sequences like the brother played by Caleb Landry Jones again. That's the one. Um, yeah, he's at the di- at dinner, and it's just the most unsettling of scenes. Um, it's also an amazing mystery film. The actual reveal of what is happening is definitely going to be more upsetting and creepy than whatever it was you were thinking is going on. Um, mm-hmm. I've yet to meet anyone who is disappointed by the reveal. Everyone likes to try and guess what it is that's exactly happening, but they're never quite upsetting enough. Your imagination can't go that far, I think. <laughs> Not unless you're Jordan Peele. Y- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, it's just an amazing little piece of cinema that the direction is stunningly well accomplished for a first-time director. Jordan Peele is definitely a talent to watch now. It's beautifully filmed. All the sequences in the sunken place are beautifully abstract, like something out of Under the yeah. Skin. The perfor- That's what I was thinking. Performances are brilliant throughout. Daniel Kaluuya is really yeah. perfect and relatable and char- charming. Alison Williams is fantastically versatile and... Bradley Whitford, and, and I forgot to get her name, just a moment. Catherine Keener? Yes, Catherine Keener is fabulous as the um, incredibly yeah. sinister mother, so. God, so oppressive. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And of course, there's the political aspect of the film, which is right on and important, and it's it's back to that whole liberal complacency thing that we talked about with uh, The Square. Mm. Yeah. At the end of every time I've seen it, the audience gasps in horror when a police car shows up. Oh, yeah, and if you can get a room full of white middle class people to think, "Oh fuck, the police are here," you've done something right. It just taps perfectly into the social horror. I yeah. think it's funny, it's upsetting, it's unnerving, <laughs> pretty impressive beyond mm. anything. It's just a film that speaks to people of all colours about subtle modern racism. Yeah, behold the coagula. <laughs> behold the coagula, and it just plays so well to a fucking crowd. Is the thing I, I keep showing it to yeah. people because when they haven't seen it, I get really excited because. Yeah, you know, it's such a provocative film with comedy that's really funny and horror moments that are really, uh, you know, oogie. Just yeah. um, <laughs> so much stuff. Yeah, so many moments where you're going to get an immediate reaction out of whoever you're watching it with. Yeah, I know. I actually showed this to Nell, and Nell, as a rule, doesn't like horror films, doesn't enjoy them. And um, <laughs> after about six, seven months of going, no, 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 it's social horror, social horror. Trust me, it's fine. <laughs> Loves it. It's. <laughs> I think it would be unfair to call it a straight-up horror, and it's mm-hmm. probably for the best that it's not because it would put off a lot of people <laughs> yeah. who wouldn't tend to go doesn't don't who don't tend to go for that genre. It's so much more than that, but at, at the heart, it is horrifying. Absolutely, <laughs> just completely. <laughs> what was your favorite moment from the film? It was the moment that Daniel Kaluuya goes upstairs, and everyone in the house stops talking oh, to stare man. at him. Yeah, that's fucking great. You don't know what's happening at that moment. You have no idea what's going on. And it is completely, it is the biggest mindfuck. Yeah, that is the first moment (sighs) that outright, I think, tells you that something fucked up is going on. Yeah. I also forgot to mention the two people who play the um, house servants in the place are wonderfully unnerving. Their their performance is fucking great. Um, But my favorite scene is definitely the first night in the house where... Chris sits down with his girlfriend's mom, uh, played by Catherine Keener, for a chat. 
that ends mm. up turning into a session. Uh, it's brilliantly written, perfectly acted, and culminates in one of the most striking images I've ever seen in a film. Um, and it's just all about Daniel Kaluuya's eyes and Peel's script. God, yeah. It's the most effective, so f- provocative moment I've yeah. seen in a film for a very long time. And she's so forceful that it becomes that therapy session. Yeah. Just inevitably. He yeah. doesn't have a choice and so suddenly it's upon him. It's it's just so uncomfortable. And you're learning this perfect sort of tragic backstory for Clea's character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fucking great. <laughs> oh, bloody hell. Well, that's it. Those were our favourite films of the year. Yeah. Oh, that's the movies that we were really glad we went and watched. How about we chat a little bit about the movies that everyone else watched, that normal people went and watched? Oh, you mean the OG team? Yeah. Oh, I better ask him then. Uh, We'll we'll tweet now and we'll wait for a response. All right. Did you you actually see any of the films that we just talked about? No. (laughs) I read... I read, <laughs> I read Empire each week, and they told me that, oh, if you want to look clever, these are the ones you should yeah. say you like. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, God. I have, I have a fucking clue. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, shit, these mics are on. <laughs> oh, oh, no. Ah, ah, quick. Ah. OG team? Yes. Queen Queen Baz, good friend Jen Blundell, says, emoji movie. Joke. Oh, you. JK. She said, she said JK. Does she mean Simmons? Yeah. JK Simmons. Oh, okay. Emoji movie's great. Film. Uh, on top of that, though, Logan made me proper cry. Ragnarok Aww. and Last Jedi were also great. Those are the only three 2017s I've, 2017 films I've seen, as it turns out. <laughs> the only 17ers. Well, if you're only going to see three films, yeah, it should be our top three, obviously. But if you're going to see three other ones, those are pretty good. And Manchester by the Sea. Yeah. Matthew Gray at Clockwork Writer, Recommender Extraordinaire, says, A ghost story for me. Mm. Nice. Hands down the most affecting, haunting film I saw all year. I certainly got overwhelmed. Oh, you did the nod as well. Oh, oh. man. Look at that. Ah, it's mates for you. <laughs> Janelle Heald? Oh. Held. Held? Who's that? Hellard. Janelle. She says, I've been trying to choose just one and failing, but I must for the pool boys. Yay. If I base it on emotional response combined with how I feel right now at 6.14 Australian Eastern Standard Time. Was that right? Yeah. Sweet. <laughs> My choice is Loving Vincent. Yay. Ask me tomorrow and I could say, get out, call me by your name or Wind River. Yay. <sighs> Very good stuff. Good, good films. Yeah. Beyond the box set said, in terms of mainstream cinema releases last year, get out from John and Dunkirk from Harry, the former for wrapping so much intelligence and invention into a crowd-pleasing horror movie, the latter for just being an incredibly visceral, thrilling cinematic experience. Yay. Katie, friend of the show. I should point out, Katie has seen almost... Uh, a f- a l- the lion's share of the films on my list with me, so she's been kind of my mm. cinema buddy for the last oh. the last year. So I thoroughly expect that her emotional reactions have been exactly the same as mine, and that she's about to name Get Out as her favorite film of the year. Well, kind of. Oh no. Well, she said she said you know mine a bit too well, so corroborating your story, so you weren't just going to the cinema with a dog in a lampshade, <laughs> as I suspected. But yes, Ghost Story, Get Out, Lady Bird, Three Billboards, and so many more. Yeah, which isn't one, but um, <laughs> they are all very good films. They are all very good films. For a while, her her, her top four, I think, were the four G's. It was like Get Out, God's Own Country, Ghost Story. Oh shit, that's a fourth. Godzilla. Godzilla. Yeah. Thanks for that, Katie. Yeah. Good films. Very good films. Blokebusters podcast said, if you'd like a real surprise, here it is. The best overall, the best film overall last year from Paul is Paddington 2. Ooh. Yes, I'm serious. It's really that good. I didn't see it. No, I haven't seen it either. That's one of the big ones. No. I, 
I found the trailer a little off-putting. I'm sure it's brilliant. I really liked the first Paddington, but I don't know. The humor in the trailer is just wasn't my kind of thing. But mm. I, I, I really must give it a go because I do love the first one and I love Ben Wyshaw and um, yeah. Brendan Gleeson, Hugh Grant, all those guys. Don't and Sally all? Hawkins. Oh, yeah, she plays Dawn. wonder if you see a muff in that. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. That was me spitting out tea. Yeah, I didn't actually see the first Paddington, so I didn't okay. get around to Paddington 2 for obvious reasons. It didn't make any sense. But I will. <laughs> Such a deep plot. Finally, you know what I like podcast said, call me by your name for our effect for how affected I was by the movie afterwards. Mm. I had to go and sit in a weather spoons afterwards and just sit with it. Gorgeous, tragic, heartfelt, and so bathed in cinematic history that you need to show a peach a good time. Witherspoons. Oh, the film. Oh, the film. oh yeah. Yeah. Great. <laughs> I see. Wonderful. Well, thanks, OG team, for that. And thanks especially to Nell for actually sitting through 50 2017 movies in the final two weeks just so I could sort my list out. <laughs> but look at those films we saw. All that great stuff. Oh. And you know what else people saw? The top 10 highest grossing films of the year. Of the year. That's what. Oh, they went and put them in their face. Let's have a quick look. Uh, number ten highest grossing film was uh, Wonder Woman, which is excellent because breaking down some boundaries there. Hopefully, teaching people that hey, Elektra might not have been the only fucking female superhero movie that we need to pay attention to. Yep. <laughs> For Ragnarok, which I think we both enjoyed, but as as I've said before, it did just underscore some of its more powerful moments with its comedy. But otherwise, it's yeah. a really entertaining film. Meandered a little bit for me, but it was just so refreshing for Thor that, I mean, Ta- Taika Waititi really took shit and turned it into gold. Yeah, and it's, it's good to have a character at last for Thor as a sort of... Personality. A very well-meaning jock, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Who's, you know... Yeah, that was good. Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2, I really loved. Um, I really liked it. It's a great sort of... Mm movie that focuses more on character than plot and mm. there are some really fun character dynamics in there. I really like the relationship between um, Nebula and um, Gamora. And mm-hmm. uh, the whole father-son thing was really interesting. A good performance from Kurt Russell and a very interesting place to take Yondu, who was originally scripted to die in the first one. So, Well, I'm, gl- I'm glad they kept him. He was pro- one of the more entertaining characters mm. in the film. Didn't quite do it for me, the second one in the mm. in the in the series personally felt like it, it meandered a bit and relied too heavily on jokes and joke set pieces and i just didn't properly get into the plot i felt like it would have been a better third film in the franchise i definitely enjoyed i definitely enjoyed my second viewing of it more when i knew okay. because the first time i was frustrated and not knowing quite where we were going the second time i was able to much better enjoy all the little sinister implications of uh, yeah. the reveal later on so yeah it's okay. just the character dynamic stood out better the second time. Number seven, Wolf Warrior 2, China's entry into the uh, top ten yeah. films. Uh, I haven't seen Wolf Warrior 1 or 2, I'm afraid. No, we shall or have 3. To. Oof, which was made no. tangentially. We shall, uh, <laughs> we shall have to see. Number yep. six, Spider-Man Homecoming. We both love it, as previously yep. mentioned. Um, cool. Number five, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. That was fun. That it's was a, a very fun film. It's a fun film. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, very little Very little to complain about, I think. Yeah. It's... The performances of the kid actors and the adult actors who have to imitate them was very good. Yeah. Uh, number four, Despicable Me. Three. Didn't see it. Didn't see it. Um, mm, probably won't. Uh, it's, it doesn't look terribly tantalizing, but... The first was pretty good. The second was pretty not good. I haven't seen the second. It was more of the same, but... yeah. For kids, yeah, I wasn't terribly drawn to that one. It seemed a little 
bland. No. Number three, Face of the Furious, the fucking eighth Furious movie, <sighs> which I don't. Yeah, think... did not like. No, we didn't like that one. I'm afraid no. it was no. uh, a lot of the problems that have plagued the Fast and the Furious movies, which are all, which are how since the fifth one have been quite fun. Uh, yeah. The eighth one felt less fun and had more of the problems. So yeah. Yeah, it it wasn't a terribly fun experience for us watching that. Kind of exhausting, if anything else. Yeah, definitely glad when it was over. It just didn't have any of the novel fun of the fifth and sixth, and to a certain extent, the seventh. Yeah, not not needed anymore. I think Uh, it's getting a bit long in the tooth now. And yeah, yeah. Uh, number two, Beauty and the Beast, which I enjoyed, Uh, and I didn't see. Ah, well, it was very good. I liked it. It was very sweet. I probably will at some point. Yeah. And number one, Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Jedi. Shit film. Shit, overrated. SJW, Mary Sue, or whatever the fuck it is. <laughs> Disney conspiracy. It's all... Shit in our stupid mouths. Save us, J.J. Abrams. At least episode one didn't ruin the series. <laughs> it was just mind-numbingly awful. Let's have a quick look at flops. Okay. Transformers The Last Night had a disappointing box office. Yay! Oh, cool. Okay. Maybe no more of them. Find demand, people. Bumblebee solo movie out this year. So did Pirates of the Caribbean 5. Oh. About time. Other yeah. flops include the absolutely and utterly unnecessary Ghost in the Shell remake. Yep. Sorry, Scarlett Johansson. I like the fact that you keep trying to do new things and interesting things, but this was pointless. Uh, the terrible looking King Arthur, the trailer to which just really didn't interest me at all. Like, yeah. The aesthetic was just come so on, Guy ugly. Ritchie. Yeah, come on. Yeah. You've done really good stuff. Just uh, the, the thing that put me off was just that none of the action looked very entertaining and the characters no. didn't seem very dynamic. I like Charlie Hunnam and things, but very disappointing considering how good the action was in the Sherlock movies. Yeah. Similarly, The Dark Tower just didn't look appealing. I mean, the Dark Tower book series I've had a troubled relationship with. I've read the first one mm. and found it interesting, but a little frustrating. So I read a plot summary of the rest of them. <laughs> And I'm very impressed okay. by how it ends. The ending is fucking yeah. fabulous, but my god, you have to go through some weird abstract, uncinematic shit to get there. Such as sort of mm. sentient cars and travelling through into our dimension and saving actual Stephen King from his car crash. <laughs> like, what is this dark fantasy series? It feels like that would be a good movie if that's exactly what it was and it was very tongue-in-cheek, meta yeah. nonsense journey, but it seems like the film didn't didn't do that. I didn't see no. it, so I can't say. But Nor did I, like but that. I'd be very surprised if there's still the sequence where the du- the gunslinger shows up and shoots a whole town. <laughs> Maybe. It looks like they turned it to like a kid's adventure. The Snowman. Very upsetting. Uh, Thomas Alfredson's yeah. one of my favourite directors, having directed two really wonderful films that I love a lot, Take yeah. a Taylor Soldier Spy and Let the Right One In. Apparently The Snowman was just really rushed and botched in editing and production. It was just... Whole sequences yeah. were not filmed and awkwardly edited around, and apparently it shows. Yeah, from what I heard, just a total mess. But yeah, it'll be an interesting one to watch at okay. some point. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll find some good things we'll about get it there. someday. <laughs> yeah, we certainly will. And chips demonstrating that just because Twenty One Jump Street was popular doesn't mean you can remake TV shows that no one anywhere has actually heard of and make a success. Yeah. Bad news for Michael Pena, who I usually really like. Um, yeah. yeah, chips bombed. Will Will they learn? Will they? Probably not. All fairly deserving, but unfortunately, Mother, yeah. Blade Runner, and Valerian all did badly too, in spite of how much we like them. So yeah, 
Uh, there's no accounting for tastes as like, jackasses. The thing is, sometimes you can just see these as a victory. Like, it's a marvel that Blade Runner got made and got out there. You know, and that's yeah. the battle. The battle was making the movie. Now it exists, and it's brilliant. It doesn't matter that it doesn't do good box office. It can make it back in, you know, cult appeal. It can yeah. have the longevity. And what's more, that movie just belongs to us now. We have it, and it's yeah. ours, and we can love it. Studios can't fuck with it now. The, yeah. The problem is that this will affect the next project. You know, the next thing Danny Villeneuve wants mm. to do, and I think it was June, right, was going to yeah. come up, like, might be marred by the failure of this. So You think there's going to be studio intervention? Uh, well, that's just the problem is a lost battle means the next battle gets harder. Ultimately, yeah, all the risks that they took didn't pay off because these movies didn't pay for themselves. And the same goes for Aronofsky, who's just perpetually struggling to get money. Yeah. Like, it is, his whole career seems to have been a mad struggle to actually get funding. It's incredible because he's made some of the, the best and most memorable films yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like maybe he'll be lauded when he's dead. Yeah. Let's kill Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> Come on, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's one thing I'd like to talk about, which is that because of these bombs, a lot of people started blaming Rotten Tomatoes. The Rock uh, claimed that this was responsible for the failure of the of Baywatch. Yeah, and there's a there's a feeling that critics are undermining these movies. What do you say to that, sir? Um, I don't think it makes one fucking bit of difference. Well, clearly not, because look at Blade Runner, which was extraordinarily yeah. critically acclaimed. Yeah. And struggled at the fucking well, box office. Well, Last Jedi. I mean, not that it struggled at the box office, but when you compare that to the to the audience score, yeah, on it, yeah, it's you c- half. People are half clearly that. people are clearly not. And, and I don't know. Before the Last Jedi, who the fuck gave a shit about the Rotten Tomato audience score? I yeah. never even heard of it until the Last Jedi became yeah. a thing. IMDb is where you gauge public reaction. The Rotten yeah. Tomatoes audience score. That's nothing actually read some of those reviews yeah. they're nothing in terms of a film failing i think there's a lot more to it. it it doesn't take a genius to look at the trailer for baywatch and go oh garbage <laughs> yeah it, it might just, be it... it might be likable garbage but yeah. yeah people are saying they're complaining that there's no more safe bets anymore now as a film critic i'd like to i like the idea that there's no safe bets that you can't just yeah. you know put this film out but it might lead to studios taking even fewer risks which is frustrating. Mm. That shouldn't be the lesson. The lesson should be, hey, Pirates of the Caribbean 5, nobody had an appetite for. Try putting yeah. your money into something new. It's, it, it really, again, it really depends. I mean, mm. what was unsafe about Baywatch? Mm. For a start, you know, it's, it, it feels like a pretty safe bet rehashing an old an old show for, for a modern audience. Nostalgia audience, it, it, it sexy just, people. And it just fucked up because yeah. it wasn't it wasn't any good, evidently. Believe it or not, the internet can be a good thing and I think buzz yeah. for smaller films that take risks is, is enough that you're hoping that the right studios will keep funding the right projects and people yeah. always, you know, people will always go on making safe bets because that's what studios have always done a lot and yeah. hopefully successive safe bets will also lead to trusting certain directors and writers to create you know to make really inventive original art like netflix always say that the success of those giant adam sandler films you know are the things that allows them to fund things like um annihilation for example or all of the tv shows they make it's like the interesting work they do is funded by the boring work that they do and i worry that big studios work the same way and that the failure of Transformers 5 isn't going to lead to everybody putting their money into the next um, Aronofsky film. Yeah. <laughs> it's just going to lead to fewer yeah. risks. That's the worry, but you never know it's, with these it's, things. Yeah, it's it's kind of like I used to, when I used to work in a bookshop and, you know, you, you 
inwardly scoffed whenever somebody bought Fifty Shades or a Dan Brown novel, but yeah. they paid for the lights sure. to stay on. You know, yeah. if this year is anything to go by, there will be many more years to come of fucking cool inventive films. And I think it's just studios. Studios will realize that there is demand for both both of these things. Yeah. They'll, always, they'll always be shit. They'll always be very successful safe bets, but there'll also be some very successful risks, I think. Absolutely. Okay, let's finish up with just some stray observations about 2017. TV in, 20, in 2017 has been fantastic. Yeah. BoJack Horseman season four is mm. the best fucking series of anything I've seen in a long, long time. <laughs> if, if you've seen it in the, in the past and you weren't mm. sure about the first season... It just gets better and better. Mm. It the this this last season was incredible, mm. and then we had the end of the fucking world, which was a, a small mm. sort of UK production, um, which was very special in its own way. Best TV show I watched last year was Twin Peaks: The Return, which Sight and Sound mm. actually named as its second favorite movie of the year, which was kind of confusing. Um, okay. Yeah, really gorgeous. It's uh, David. It's just nineteen hours of new David Lynch stuff. And that's. <laughs> all you need really is uh, the whole Dougie thing gets kind of tiresome but around it is just some of the most inventive bizarre and provocative kind of cinema that has been made mm. in the last um oh god since tw- since he stopped working i really hope that this marks a return to the cinema for david lynch but in the meanwhile this was fabulous thank you so much for this do you want to talk about the best pictures on the oscars yeah sure um i just think the spread of movies in the best picture category were fucking incredible yep a second year in a Um, row of just utterly fabulous films half of my top 10 films of the year were nominated for best picture um a couple of dull choices in there like the post which was fine oh yeah it was good i i kind of liked it i completely forgot until this moment that it was directed by steven spielberg it's Fine. It's good. It's fine. Gary Oldman was fine. I didn't I Darkest think Hour. Better. Yeah, they yeah. it was but it was his his time, wasn't it, to get his it thing. It was his turn. I'm just really kind of I was really disappointed in the Darkest Hour for being so unwilling to interrogate yeah, Churchill and his legacy at all. Cuz you can do so. that and still be respectful. You know, yes. you can you can still say he was a great man, but he also struggled with depression, and he was also a terrible military and peacetime leader for the mo- for the <laughs> most part. Bit of a racist. But, bit of a racist. <laughs> bit of a Tory, but at times uh, when he when he was a Tory, not when he was crossing <laughs> to other parties. Uh, yeah, it just didn't do anything when that he, underground scene, the scene on the uh, tube, yeah. was just really cringeworthy. Oh my god, that was that was awful. Yeah. That was too much to bear. That and the any representation of British politics in that film was fucking embarrassing. Surprised that Shape of Water won so yeah. many. I think there were there are more sort of deserving pieces because I think it was a good film, but I don't think it was. I don't think it was better than the others. And I, you know, maybe it's unfair comparing it to Pan's Labyrinth, but um, I was I was surprised. I, I really loved Shape of Water, and I was very glad to see it pick up so much stuff. I was very surprised because of how yeah. unusual it is. Um, yeah. So yeah, Great. there's it's a really exciting time for Mexican cinema and. Yeah, it's a really nice sort of subversive film, and maybe it was just the safest bet at this stage because there's very little controversy yeah. around it, other than its unconventional love story. But um, I mean, sure, I'd have liked to have, I'd like for best director to have finally gone to Christopher Nolan, just because this was a really well directed film, and I love him, and yeah. I'd love to see him actually get that award. Failing that, Greta Gerwig for Lady Bird, but hey ho! Yeah, I was glad there was no sweeper <sighs> this year. Nothing swept and sort of blocked anything else yeah. out entirely. It was 
more evenly distributed than it usually is, which I think is almost always a good thing. Yeah, definitely a good mm. thing. Definitely healthy. Unless, of course, the film deserves it, in which case, you know, <laughs> you can't just deny it that. But mm. I think there, there was so much good there that, you know, Jordan Peele deserved best writer. Uh, not best yeah. writer, but best uh, original screenplay and yeah. things like that. But And a wonderful win for James Ivory for... Um... Call me by your name. Yeah, absolutely. If if the Oscars could just shake that turn basis that they seem to have for people who just who have been doing the thing long enough and probably should have had the award for something else. Okay. Um. Another observation: horror films were really good last year. Uh, from the mm. record-breaking It, uh, to Split, the first good Shyamalan film in a very long while, which is a record yeah. of its own. Annabelle Creation, I really enjoyed. It comes at night. Raw. Felmer. Uh, Cult of Chucky that was surprisingly very good Um, Happy Death Day The Ritual and uh, Veronica I really liked the preponderance of Netflix movies this year some weren't that well received but um, Okja was Netflix of course (laughs) I also really enjoyed Bright it was pretty much universally slammed but Mm. I, I really enjoyed it and I think that Netflix has been doing some really good stuff with that yeah. Is it is it the death of cinema? No, obviously not. <laughs> Grow up. It's Indeed. just it's just there. There's Sims, room for everything. Yeah, there's room for everything. Would have preferred to see Annihilation this year on the big screen, but yeah, did a. Uh, oh, what can well. you do? What can you actually do? Well, that's um, that's it for me. Yeah, I think I think we'll leave it at that. Cool. Well, thank you very much for listening to One Good Thing. Yeah, thanks so much for sticking with us that entire year. Who knows yeah. what the next year is going to bring? <laughs> Films. Inevitably, yes. Yeah. We're not going to sit down. anything else right now. All agree just not to make them this year. <laughs> you know what? I don't know. That's <laughs> a bloody who's, film, Mark. Wait. Who's ever said that we had to do this? <laughs> this year, it's just theatre. We're going to have films again <laughs> next year, but for now, just theatre. Well, yes. And um, with that in mind, let's see what the next year brings. It's, yeah. Who knows what's going to happen when it becomes January 2018. Please follow and review and all the things. Yeah. We had a lovely tweet from Victor Gamboa this past week mm. uh, to say, if you're ever feeling down for any reason, I recommend giving OGT Pod a listen. The theme song alone is enough to brighten your day. Hashtag podcast excellence. Oh. If that's not the nicest thing anyone's ever said about us, I will <laughs> eat the world. If you have lovely things to say, why not put it in an iTunes review? Ooh. Really show the world that the poor boys mean business. Sure will. Excellent. Well... I'm Paul Salt. I'm Paul Goodman. And remember, the one good thing about 2017 is that it's been over for about four months now.